Welcome to the Classical Music Pod. I'm Tim and he's Sam. This week, Tim quizzes the people's percussionist, Joby Burgess, on flam rudiments. Brace yourselves for a medium-sized flea bag slam. And we don't hear the first piece of classical music sold on the blockchain. Sam, for this week's news quiz, I prepared six audio clues, each of which is linked to a news story from this week. Your job is to guess the story. I understand my job, Tim. Okay, good. Here's the first. How great to hear God Save the Queen, but with presumably words about Liechtenstein. The, the, mm-hmm. I think this means that it is the news story that Oliver Dowden has announced a huge, a whopping new uh, trade deal with, I think it's three countries, yeah. Iceland, Liechtenstein and... Norway. Is Norway. The yes. uh, so British musicians will be able to go there. But like Liechtenstein, if I remember, it doesn't have an airport I didn't know that. But yes, you're right. This is the news that DCMS has struck a trade deal with Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein that will allow musicians, performers and support crews to tour without the post-Brexit bureaucracy of visas and carnets and permits. And as you can imagine, Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, got a fair rinsing on Twitter after making the announcement. Tim Burgess of the Charlatans pointed out that Iceland's population is roughly the same as Wigan, whilst Liechtenstein's is the same as Wimslow in Cheshire. I've never been to Wimslow, but it hasn't made a significant mark on the national stage for its population size, has it? No, it's not. Um, Hey, it's a start. I'm the MP for um, BBC Elstree, which is where uh, EastEnders is filmed. Next clip. Uh, so Bob Dylan has he yep. has he done is he going to do some more concerts where no one can tell what pieces he's playing? It's not actually Dylan himself who was the centre of this story, right? Although you're right, that was like a Rolling Stone from his 1970 album Self Portrait. Okay, you clearly don't know this, so I'll just tell you. This week, a copy of the album was returned 48 years overdue to the Cleveland Heights <laughs> Library in Ohio. Ah. Uh, the culprit, one Howard Simon, attached a letter to the LP with the following message. As a recent retiree, I am taking the opportunity to turn my attention to some of the many vignettes of life that <laughs> by dint of career and family have been neglected these many years. In that context, I am returning with this letter an overdue item that I borrowed from the library in the spring of 1973 when I was 14. So it's quite late. And I'm quite sorry. What a charming letter. I know. That's really, really nice. A- any idea how much he owes the library? Oh. Uh, does it top out? Like, uh, my university fines would always have to top out like £10. <laughs> well, pounds. Cut, yeah, you're, you're on the right track. Luckily, the Cleveland Heights Library no longer charges overdue fines at all. So, zero. Oh. Despite this, Howard enclosed a cheque for $175, uh, along with a copy of his own album, mm. Western Reserve saying it could be an obscure item, quote-unquote, for the library's collection. It's a great way to get some promotion on your own album. Yeah, it's savvy, right? Uh, next clip. That was quite a spicy remix of The Wellerman, popular with all the 11-year-olds I teach. Um, is it that they've recorded a version about vaccines? I saw that. Or something like that. No, actually, that's not it. But you're right that it is Wellerman, the sea shanty singer and TikTok star, 
Nathan Evans, one of the remixes, one of the many remixes I think he's done of it. He's actually expanding on the success of that single by releasing a book mm. featuring more than 35 of his favourite shanties, along with the stories behind them. He's really tapping that sea shanty sheen. Ugh. That's a tw- tongue twister for you. Sea shanty seam. Tapping that sea shanty seam for all that it's worth, isn't he? He is. Next clip. I'm getting strong Family Fortunes vibes. It is Family Fortunes. Yeah, correct. Um, is this, I think, that was hosted by Les Dennis. Yes. Who has just said he's going to play some major part in some major production, but I can't remember yes. which it is. Is it ENO? You're right. Is it yeah. something like... Is it something like Fiddler on the Roof? No, they did that a few years ago. What is it? It's GNS. Oh, uh... uh, I'm tugging at my beard forelock in the hope of it <laughs> reminding me, and I can't... I don't know. He's been cast as the baritone Sir Joseph Porter... In the ENO's production of HMS Pinafore. Good for Les. Yeah, opens on the 29th of October. What other West End show will you be able to catch Les in this year, Sam? I don't know. What a double treat. Yeah, Hairspray. He'll be playing Wilbur when the show opens on the 21st of June, if it does indeed open on the 21st of June. Yeah, well, quite. That is a great show. Mm -hmm. Next one. Actually, final clip for you. Sounds like um, Caroline Shaw. That that I'll give you a clue. The words they were saying there were Amelia Earhart. Um, I'm assuming it's something to do with Amelia Earhart. Is it the centenary of her circumnavigation? Not quite. No, no. not circumnavigation. Whatever it is, transatlantic flight. No, I, this is really hard. I, I kind of stitched you up because I couldn't really find the right clip. But <laughs> that was from a choral piece called Betty's Notebook by Texan composer Nicholas Reeves, which has become, which first of all is based on some intercepted uh, SOS messages, possibly from. Amelia Earhart's last fatal flight. But anyway, the, the piece itself has become the first piece of classical music to be sold on the blockchain. Oh, like yeah, a sort of... Like um, an NFT. Yeah. That's really yeah. a strange thing to do. I know. Have you any ideas how much for? I guess a lot. $375,000. What? Yeah. It went to auction at Async Art, which is a digital art auction blockchain platform. It has this second occurred to me that the reason I couldn't get a clip was because it has been sold privately. Anyway, apparently the money raised from the sale will go back to the Verdegree Ensemble, who are the group that commissioned the work back in 2018. So that's a pretty savvy piece of zeitgeist surfing, I'd Can say. we get a podcast as an NF something? NFP? It needs to be done, yes. Yeah. Incidentally, if anyone wants to sponsor us, no, no. Okay, well, there's your quiz. I think you got one out of six there. So that was hard. Really hard. It was hard. good, but hard. Yeah, cool. Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, Purposeful meanings, purposeful meanings, purposeful meanings, classical music pod, I should say. Tim, I thought it's time we tried to wrestle something big. It takes me back to my days with the West Wiltshire women's judo team. Which particular target are you hoping to pin to the mat today? Meaning. Meaning. I've been thinking a bit about how pieces become meaningful, a subject on which we will no doubt offer few actual answers, but the conversation might start a few people thinking. A small can of worms in that minefield. If we're mixing metaphors, it's quite the white whale to try and climb, and if we're to cement our position at the summit, I thought we'd need to wield the axe on a few pieces. It looks like we're putting all our eggs in this barrel of laughs. Well, our first example isn't a barrel of laughs exactly. Penderecki? Exactly. The great Polish innovator who looks like a bespectacled Furby came to life and started reshaping music history. His Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, written for 52 string players, sounds like this. (laughs) 
before we think about meaning, can we address some of the amazing things going on musically in this piece? Of course. Penderecki can be seen as part of a revitalization of Polish music in the 1950s, spurred on by the relaxation of Soviet Union control on cultural activities and the subsequent performance of avant-garde music in Poland, especially that of mushroom enthusiast and silence expert John Cage. It sounds incredibly contemporary for a piece written in 1960. You know, we don't sound pre-colour TV, do we? No, a, a decade before the invention of the Rubik's Cube, Penderecki asked the string players to engage in a number of groundbreaking techniques. Things that if you do in school, they take the viola off you and politely inquire if you'd prefer percussion. Yeah, exactly. Threnody's got a rebellious quality to it for sure. Pitch markings are often approximate. The first marking is a request that players find the highest note their instrument can play something that's going to differ from person to person, and Penderecki asks them to strike the bow on the fingerboard and near the bridge. He also requests all sorts of unusual glissandi and vibrato, and crucially, each of the 52 string players has their own individual part. Mm, sort of like Sperminalium for strings. Yeah. It's my understanding Penderecki was inspired more by his experience with electronic music than Talis, but the scoring effect is much the same. Small choirs of strings shriek at one another, and then they all come together at the end. Mm. Feels uh, a lot like people have echoed this sound, right? Yeah, for sure. Other composers from around this time, like Ligeti, who also work in big blocks of sound, have been gaggled together with Penderecki and called the sonorism movement. Many contemporary composers feel the influence of sonorism, like Johnny Greenwood, former Radiohead guitarist, who is a huge fan and explicit about the influence Penderecki had on the score for There Will Be Blood. Best film score of the noughties. That's for another day. Mm. Isn't Threnody also used as a soundtrack to the criminally underrated dystopian Clive Owen film Children of Men? It is. Four years before the Civil Rights Act was passed in America, Christoph was writing music that still sounds like a dystopian version of the future. His icocytophonic language... What? Uh, let me explain. Rather than dividing the eight tones or twelve semitones of an octave... In Threnody, Penderecki uses icocytophonic language, which divides an octave into 24 quarter-tonal pitches, which sound like this... Why isn't an octave called a dodective if it's got 12 semitones in? I don't know, but maybe for another day. Mm. Even the notational markings Penderecki invented for threnody are now pretty much standard. Uh, yes. And so what is a threnody? Is this where we start talking about meaning? Yeah, okay. It's half past wrestle Moby Dick o'clock, isn't it? A threnody is a lament. A song of mourning. A dirge or elegy, something to be sung in memoriam. We might think of Threnody for Albert Herring by Britain. Or There's Candle in the Wind by Elton John. Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton, that I've heard you sing many a time. Or uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat by Charles Mingus for Lester Young. So Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima is a hugely meaningful title commemorating the victims of one of the great tragedies of the 20th century. Well... It only had that very meaningful title from 1964. But it was written in 1960, wasn't it? Yes. Ah. So what was it called first? The original title was 8.37, and was presumably a reference to the running time. And a nod to Cage's 4.33. It certainly seems a good guess. The retitling of Threnody seems to have happened around the time the piece was performed in Japan, and also around the time he entered the piece for a UNESCO Compositional Prize. Oh dear. I suppose the question is, has he grafted on an enormously evocative title to add meaning? Well, perhaps. I think we hear the piece differently because we assume it is an expression of the grief, anger and despair felt in the wake of Hiroshima. But then... Has he found a home for the sound he's created? Found a better direction for the upset the piece seems to express? Now, either way, the piece has accrued meaning through reference to the extra musical. Indeed, the first title being a cage nod means it always has. Yeah, the historical context can leave us wondering if Threnody is actually any good or just has a powerful title, in the same way that we can't tell if Fleabag Season 2 is any good or if it just has a first excellent episode and then lots of Andrew Scott in it. No! 
So there's a couple of questions we'll just leave dangling for you to think about. Send answers on the back of your Phoebe Waller-Bridge stationery, please. But we're agreed that our first category, the first way music can enhance its meaning beyond the dots on the page and the sound of its pitches, is through reference to the extra musical. And I suppose the second category exists because the inverse is true. You know, other arts can reference or include music to gain in meaning. Totally. Handel could not have predicted that his ode for the birthday of Queen Anne... That we featured in our first ever episode... Yep, ...would be inextricably linked to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, thanks to their wedding. And thereby lending a sense of deep meaning and occasion to a bonfire of public money. There's a lot to work through there. Or perhaps you might have seen the lending of musical meaning to other art in the Bond film released during the Hollywood writers' strike, Quantum of Solace. The rehash of Goldfinger with water pipelines includes a climactic scene where Bond confronts the evildoers at the opera. A veritable dearth of dialogue is compensated for by intercutting the mute Daniel Craig with the Te Deum sequence from Puccini's opera Tosca. Take away the operatic underscore and you've got something about as tense as a DFS sale. Yeah, link to that sequence in the description below for anyone who wants a refresher. Well, Tosca isn't for everyone. So we've heard two categories of musical meaning so far. Music can lend a sense of emotional heft, of meaning, like in Tosca, just as it can have that evocative power lent to it, as with the title for Threnody. What's your final category, Sam? I'm sure it's by no means the last. Others will have all sorts of categories of their own. But for me, the final grouping is to do with lived experience for performers and audience members. Like how Beethoven 5 will now always be the first piece I got to see in concert after Covid. Yeah, or I have a pal who's singing Sea Fever in his final recital because that piece was the first that he sang at music college. And whether John Ireland's song is good, bad or ugly as a set of sounds and pitches, it's meaningful to him, so he wants to perform it. Because of the experiences he's had with it. Exactly. I know I am personally blinded to the merits or demerits of the Manny Sherwin song A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square because it is intrinsically linked to people I love. You could try and tell us it uses chords 1, 3 and 6 in a strong opening gesture, much like Somewhere Over the Rainbow or Elvis's Can't Help Falling in Love. They're good chords. They are good chords. But the reason those opening harmonies reach straight to the heart of me is because I shared it with my mum who taught it to me because her dad, Grandpa Pete the Beat of Schoenberg Chocolate Box fame, taught it to her. Has personal lineage. Yeah. And as you know, Tim, uh, Pete the Beat died last week. And I've been thinking about this song since, as it's one we used to sing together, even as his dementia became more pronounced. And sure, we explored Penderecki-style quarter-tonal variations on the theme as his hearing became more untethered. And his late period dialogue may have made as much sense as the exposition of Quantum of Solace. But the music making we shared was properly moving to me. I will keep teaching Nightingale to anyone who needs to take their ABRSM grade 5 or anyone else who wants to hear it. And thanks to Pete, it's always going to be special to me. And I'm going to try and make it meaningful for others as well. So that final category is music can gain personal meaning through shared participation. I think so. And so my request of all our listeners, is to, as soon as you can in a way that feels safe, go and participate in some music together. Listen, play or sing, but share it between you. It doesn't have to be of a very high standard. It doesn't have to be the most monolithic totems in the canon. It doesn't have to innovate and create new technical soundscapes like Penderecki or prop up a frankly outdated film franchise as Tosca did with Bond. Your music just has to be shared to gain some meaning. It's the only category I can see that we all have some agency in. And I'm asking you all to go and start flexing that newly regained power. You got to pick a pocket or two. Waltz of the Flowers from Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, written in 1892. One Day I'll Fly Away, written by Joe Sample and Will Jennings in 1980. One day I'll fly away Leave your love you got to pick a pocket or two Turn you in, turn you in, turn you in 
All right. How are you doing? Anyway, what, what have you been up to today? Anything exciting? What have I done today so far? Um, <laughs> I had a very busy day yesterday, so I sort of was recovering this morning. Okay. Uh, did the, I did the school run and um, I had to spend some time doing some copy for a, an email list to all the participants of the Virtual Rimba Choir. Um, right. Because it's one year old tomorrow. Is that uh, the anniversary? Because I watched that. F- I'm afraid I have to admit, I didn't watch it. I, I didn't think I was aware of it when it came out last year. I, I know. What was that about? But I watched it when I was sort of put it, doing a bit of digging into your life. And yes. it was really, I found it really moving. I don't know if, if if that was the desired effect, but I find it really moving. There's something about all of these marimba players across the world. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of an interesting thing to do, and it was done. <laughs> it was done for the right reasons, and I, I think yeah. that probably came out on the other side as well. So yeah, it really yeah. did. Yeah. Hmm. So that's one year tomorrow then. One year tomorrow, the 29th of May was the day it was released. Um, I mean, for no good reason apart from it's a nice, nice reason to have finally write to everyone who took part at the same time and say hi. Yeah. Remember this thing we did? That was fun. Didn't Whitaker do it as well with a virtual... Did you yeah, know? so, well, I was driving the kids to school one morning, um, uh, probably the first week in March last year, and mm. um, lovely Gareth Malone came on the radio and said he was going to do some virtual projects. It was on Radio 2, so I was going to get everyone everyone involved in this. I thought, oh, that's fantastic, we're going we're gonna to be doing this. We're going to be doing lots of those in a few weeks' time, are we? That'd be nice. Mm. And I said, I said to the kids, well... My friend Eric, he did this. He did this like ten years ago, and I think the reason he did it, if I'm right, if I'm right in remembering this correctly, was that one of his fans basically filmed himself singing it and sent it to him, and said, "What do you think of this?" And then he was sort of, "Oh, I wonder if we could, I wonder if we could get more people to do this," and and so was born, you know, the Whitaker mm-hmm. virtual project, which is, which in the last year has been, I think, probably the basis for many many people going well this is definitely a possibility because yeah you know he's quite the pioneer isn't he in his own way mr whitaker yeah i think so have you met him have you chatted to him and because you did you the album of arrangements of his work yeah. right yeah so we um we worked together in 2012 so he had a um his first bbc prom which was like a late night gig with his choir and with the BBC singers so it's kind of 60 I think probably 64 voices or something like that sort of double choir mm. and that also had percussion in it as well and piano as well so a very small group of uh, instrumentalists so um I was asked to to go in and lead lead the percussion bit lead the percussion. so yeah so we were so we worked on, on on that and that was my first project working with Eric and we've done a few more things since then and a couple of years ago he said I wonder if you might fancy arranging some of my music. And I did that. And then I thought, oh, maybe we'll record it. That'd be a nice thing to do. And then that recording was released in end of February last year. So mm. we were going to go out and play a bunch of shows, which would have been nice, but we didn't do that. <sighs> yeah, of course. So with with all work gone, I sort of thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I could, maybe I could scramble a, a virtual project. Yeah. Because that piece will obviously work because it's been done before pretty cool guy to just sort of call up and work with every now and then i mean he's he's as much of a rock star as anyone in the classical music world gets right eric whitaker yeah i think so i mean he was he's he's very easygoing he's you know he lives out in california he's got the appropriate long blonde hair it's beautiful i think there's probably a twitter page devoted to eric's hair yeah (laughs) i would be surprised and if there isn't there probably will be shortly we should (laughs) to admit the, the percussion kind of world is not one that I had got into much before but I hadn't realized that the first I mean the first percussion concerto apparently was Darius Milo and that's 1916 which is so recent and the first this might be wrong I'm, I should have fact checked this really but the first no, solo percussion piece was 
wasn't until 1959 Stockhausen no I think that's I think that's pretty good information um so yeah Mio 1916 concerto for percussion and small orchestra which is very old school by today's standards um, but very fun and you know I always thought for a long time that the first solo piece of percussion music was Stockhausen Cyclist but a lot of people cite uh, the cage piece which is called 27 minutes 4.89671 seconds or something I can't remember um, <laughs> as, as the first one but that's got electronics in it so maybe it's slightly it's impure slightly. It's, well, possibly in my book, probably more pure. But uh, uh, <laughs> in a, yeah, I think cyclists is or cycles is its translation. Circles, mm. um, yeah, I think a lot of people conceive that as, or would kind of wrestle with that as the first piece of right. solo percussion music, and it's certainly one of the first ones I learned. So that's kind of a a core piece in the percussion repertoire. Then is it? So, yeah, so. I, I think it's probably gone a bit out of fashion. I mean, it's it's difficult. It's long. How long are we talking? Well, weirdly, it's uh, sort of t it's it's got a time frame, but you can make the boxes anything up to two seconds long. So a slow a slowish performance would be twenty minutes or slightly over, and a, fa a very fast performance would be getting towards sort of ten eleven minutes. And there, there's no right or wrong. It's just a you know it's a progression of time. But you have to make decisions about which way you're going to read the score, which elements of the uncontrolled material you're going to play and when you're going to play them and which way up you're going to play them. So every interpretation is, you know, hugely different to the next. Is there a lot of that on, I'm thinking, King, one of the pieces on your Pioneers of Percussion, your two Pioneers of Percussion EPs that came out? Presumably the Feldman piece is quite a lot of that. Yeah, so like a lot of early percussion music, um, the Stockhausen and the Feldman both have uh, graphic scores. And I think this was largely because there was kind of how do we notate percussion? And so a lot of people looked at bringing their own way of doing it, you know, their own way of doing it. And it's thinking about the attacks of sounds as opposed to, because most of our instruments don't sustain. So you're always thinking about the front of the note and you think about what happens after the note, but you can't change very much of what happens at the end of the note. And actually the 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 Feldman is written in response to the Stockhausen because he thought this was very sort of angular and dirty and square and angry and loud and German. abrasive. Yeah, maybe German. And um, he was sitting on a beach in Coney Island and came up with this incredibly soft piece of percussion music, which is played only with the hands. So you don't use any beaters or implements to, to sound the objects. But the instrumentation in The King of Denmark is totally free, bar he does ask that you have a vibraphone, but he doesn't tell you how to play it. Um, you, you need to have a triangle, but again, you're going to be playing that with your fingernails to get any real bite out of it. Do you have to keep your fingernails at a certain length for... Not you're not like a guitarist. <laughs> no. no, I don't have any. Don't. I barely have any. No, no, it's 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 more in the stroke than the actual. Right. <laughs> said, said the actress to the vision. Uh, I find it fascinating that there's this collection of sort of Cage Feldman. Lou Harrison, these people that essentially creating a new genre in the well, in the fifties in New York, just building it from scratch, working out how do we write this down, what should we do? Is, is that your understanding? Yeah, my 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 understanding from conversations and reading the books and listening to the records is that yeah, it was kind of it was kind of real happening. Mm. Um, I suppose we're just sort of post post war and people people were looking for, for new sounds and it's it, it, a lot of sort of soundscape stuff and a lot of found instruments. Mm. Um, a lot of percussionists just sort of starting to go, well, I could play on my own or we could play in a group where it's chamber music with just percussion. And it happened in, in New York and it happens, um, you know, it happened there and those voices were all there at the same time. And there was a whole group of uh, really interesting percussionists working. Yeah, Paul, Paul Price, one of them, I think. Yeah, Paul Price and Jan Williams. Um, and then uh, the guy who the, the Feldman was written for, whose name is, eludes me at the minute. Um, yeah, so that kind of creates a creates a buzz. I mean, it's a bit like that happens all the time in music. You get these little kind of pockets of yeah. activity, which are... I would love to have hung out with them at one of their like post-gig 
parties with Cage and Feldman and just been a fly on the wall to some of their conversations. It would have been absolutely... In fact, there's a lovely story of how Feldman and Cage met. I don't know if you know this one, where I think they were at a concert. It might have been the New York Phil. Or so. it, was, it was some kind of concert in one of the big concert halls. And it was a program, something very down the line canon Beethoven something or other in the second yeah. half but the first half was I think it was something by Faber and they both walked out after half time because they weren't interested in listening to the the Beethoven or whatever it was and, and sort of turned to each other and went that was beautiful about the the Weber and then they ever since then they were friends I don't know that may also be apocryphal but that's that's what I, I've heard I, I, it's a nice story and I've Isn't never it? heard it before. So it's yeah. It's a nice one, even if it's not true. We, yeah, touched on your two EPs, which you've released. You've had a pretty busy lockdown, I guess, because although I, some, <laughs> a few of them were commissioned a few years ago, I understand. But... Yeah, that Pioneers project's been quite a long, that recording, those recordings have been quite a long time coming. Mm. So yeah, you're right. There's three commissions, which were all commissioned at the same time in 2016. And then the three sort of older pieces, the Takamitsu, the Zanarkis and the Feldman, uh, they're the kind of works that give me the most freedom. They're sort of the masterpieces where I feel I can put m as much of my stamp on as yeah. I want to. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, what's the sort of common denominator between all these composers? So the, the old works, the Takamitsu, the Zanarkis and the Feldman all have graphic scores. The instrumentation is pretty much open. Mm. A lot of the speeds that you can choose uh, is open so there's an awful lot resting on the performer's interpretation and certainly with a huge collection of instruments and a lot of experience of um having to think about sound often on the fly in terms of what works well and what doesn't work and it just felt like i could really make some my own versions you know my right. version of the film and my version of the takamitsu and there's an artist that i recorded as I've never played it like that before, but it's it's the idea that I had. I wanted to sort of bring a really cinematic drum wave working mm. to this this piece because there are two astounding recordings by the two greatest players in in my book, and Steve Schick is one of them, and it's a very American version. What makes it American? Well, it's become it, there's become this sort of divide, American European, and on that particular piece, Zaffa you get this uh, American way of playing the piece where you might play with quite a large range of instruments. So you would definitely be using woods and metals and different sorts of drums. And you'd probably be using different mallets in all the different parts of the hands and you might even be changing mallets. So you get this very, very wide range of sounds. Whereas the European version, which kind of comes from sort of Gert Mortensen's um, recording is this really strong thing. It's basically just drums. It's very, it's very butch. It's very rock and roll, and it's metal. There's no wood sounds at all. Um, it's it's very forceful. It's all the same mallets for the same piece. And the tradition over the years has just kept on going. So if you if you go and hear a European percussionist, you'll almost certainly hear them play it in in that style. That's fascinating. I had no, I had no idea that such a divide existed. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think they're both equally you know interesting and brilliant. But it's the same score, and with obviously with that knowledge, it's like well, I'm going to do what I can do. So I spend a lot of time tracking drums and percussion on on feature films where we layer up drums on top of each other to get a much thicker fuller sound so that's what i did with my zanarchus i sort of brought that to zanarchus and it was kind of like that's how i feel about this piece and that's what it could be so there's a as an american and a european and a joby burgess <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're saying <laughs> there's always a third way isn't there <laughs> yeah yes all right Um, yeah, so there was those, there's those three pieces, and and uh, and then the the commissions. Um, they were just people that I was really interested in working with. Mm. Linda Buckley from from Ireland was someone who'd been my radar for two or three years. I sort of fall in love with her her sound world, which is it's a bit Icelandic, it's a bit Berliny, it's quite ambient, 
you know. Mm. So I thought I thought there was definitely going to be something there, and she was really excited to to write this brilliant piece, Ecstasis, which is actually quite warm and quite. It is quite warm, lovely. isn't it? Yeah, that's what I found when I listened to it. It was like being enveloped. I love that's that. kind of what it feels like to play it as, as well, being enveloped in this beautiful, warm sound world of long electronics and yeah. Mm. What's the process of recording something like that where there's so much electronics? Are you in control of the electronics as well? So Linda actually writes these quite dense electronic things, but they tend to be fixed. So they tend to be sound worlds, which you then kind of roll within. Mm. But there's quite a lot of elements of the gongs that I play and some of the bowed vibraphone material. So I made some samples, which she incorporated into, mm. into the track. And then she had some samples of Javanese gamelan and also a bit of her own voice, uh, the electronic component of, of that piece. Um, and so it's kind of a melding of those two worlds, the acoustic vibraphone and, and uh, Thai gongs with, with that soundtrack. Mm. Um, and that seems to be sort of prevalent in, mo- in many of her works for which she uses electronics with live instruments. So a lot of, you were pre-recording things, sending it to her, she was creating her soundscape and then she was sending that back to you and then you were recording on top of that. So it's- Essentially, yeah. So for the first performance, she created a, a track which had elements of recordings that I had sent to her. Yeah. And then when we made the recording, which you can go and hear whatever, wherever you want to hear it, it's me playing on top of and within, I suppose, the, the electronic track that she created. Mm. And in a live performance, then I, you know, it'd just be doing those two things. The other pieces are um, also by some brilliant composers. And Nicole Lise, I was introduced when I was in Vienna. And um, I was introduced to her piece, The Hitchcock Etudes, which was originally a piece for solo piano with video and electronics. But it's created from bits of film from various Hitchcock films, which are then sort of cut up and glitched and turned into some sort of track, which you then play piano on top of. And I was really taken with her work. And so desperately wanted to commission her. Mm. And she's worked quite a lot with various percussion groups and percussionists over the years as well. So she's got a really strong understanding of colour and uh, also quite a lot of off-the-wall sort of lo-fi choices in percussion instruments as well. Mm. So the piece that she wrote for me, which is called The Filthy 15, has got this little kit. It's actually called a censorship kit, um, but it includes an electric guitar, with a delay pedal, which I play with brushes, a turntable, which I play by, you know, t- spinning the disc and then actually physically play the record with stick. Yeah. Um, there's a type, an old Olivetti typewriter for a duet with Frank Zappa. There's torn paper. There's books, which you have to play like this by kind of levering them together. There's chains on the vibraphone. There's lots of really quite out there techniques. Oh, there's some buzz saws as well, sort of blades from a saw, which you kind of use as sort of a, super trashy symbol right that's that piece has got a, a crazy story because i don't if you heard do you know what the filthy 15 is the... no please explain so in in 1985 a group of um washington wives um led by tipper gore who is the other half of alcohol and uh, her bunch of her friends decided that rock lyrics had gone too far they wanted to basically take the rock and roll industry to court and you know get them banned they didn't yeah. want their daughter coming home and listening to Darling Nikki by, no, by Prince on Purple Rain. Poison in their ears. Yeah, so they picked 15 songs by 15 different artists, although I think Prince wrote three of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the artists, but he wrote, I think he wrote two of the others. And it's quite a disparate set. I mean, there's Wasp and there's ACDC and Judas Priest, but there's also Madonna and Sheila Eastern and Cindy Lauper. No one was taken to court, but there was a day of Senate hearings. I suppose it sort of ended up at, at not really very much, but it, it could have ended up, you know, censoring rock and roll. But the sort of mutual thing that came out after that, the next year, beginning of 1986, was those little black and white stickers, say parental advisory, parental advisory. Were, were, added, were added to records. And that's kind of the first instance, really, of, you know, mass censorship on, right. on the music industry. And... I think that it was a it, that that little sticker became a badge of honor for for a lot of artists in the mm. following years. The Parents Music Resource Center, the PR, PMRC, 
was the organization and um there's an awful lot of songs out there which reference the pmrc it's, it's funny that you mention a prince lick just two days ago i got a text from my brother who will be listening to this saying i've just listened to a prince i've got it up i've just listened to a prince song with the lyric i'm a sex shooter shooting love in your direction there <laughs> we mean, go <laughs> come on man just <laughs> had no shame did he anyway, but yeah so how is that how is that linked to Nicole's piece and how is she using that theme in her music? Oh, so you've got the sort of censorship materials, uh, the censorship instruments, which I play as part of the kit. But it's basically a rock and roll. It's like a quasi documentary. So it starts off with this introduction of, you know, Susan Baker and Tipper Gore. And then some some riff is created out of the back of those lyrics and that that becomes music that I play. And it's kind of in seven or eight short little movements which are sort of all bonded together so there's a there's a duet with with frank zappa so frank zappa was one of the three rock and roll musicians who appeared at the senate hearings and talked about it and so he he appears talking about censorship on the screen and, and in the electronic track and then he gets glitched and cut up and we duet with me on a typewriter and a hi-hat and him doing his sort of glitchy lyrics which is kind of cool mm. um there's a section called typical bondage ballad um great so that's that's a good bit with guitar and her talking about bondage mm -hmm. there's a lovely bit um from darling nikki so it takes a bit of the prints and cuts up and slices it and then you play a new sort of weird groove over the top of that yeah sort of poking fun at the establishment yeah. and kind of telling the story and i think a, you know it's a, it's a story that a lot of people don't know then tipper her daughter bought Purple Rain, Princess Purple Rain. I met a girl named Nikki. Guess you could say she was a sex mean. 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 It's fascinating. But that couldn't be more different from Can't Sleep Rebecca Dale, which is, I don't know what you'd call it, neo-minimalism or... Whatever label you want to give to it. Yeah, probably the easiest thing to get one's head into. She kind of struggled with the idea. She was really happy to write me a piece. And I worked on a couple of orchestral scores, recording them in the studio. And uh, thought she was just thought what she was writing was, was stunning. It was so well crafted. The orchestration was, you know, immaculate. And uh, so I thought, yeah, just got to do something. And she normally writes pieces for a large orchestra or large choir, big forces. And so I was like, you know, can you write me a piece of this solo project? And she was like, mm. um, it's going to be a challenge. And so and so she used a looper, which wasn't a technology she'd worked with before. So we kind of workshopped some ideas um, and she sort of built a piece with, you know, 10 or 12 versions of me, which I do live on the, on the, on the fly. And so I think she found it a really interesting opportunity just to kind of investigate if she was using bit of looping technology how she could incorporate that as a compositional tool yeah she very kindly also um has said that it was really nice to work with a percussionist and she understands a lot more about how to write for percussion now so i guess it's another feather to her bow in a way as an orchestrator that she can you know it's something that she can now take into her orchestral large-scale work and have a much more in-depth knowledge and use much more effectively I hope so. Um, I mean, we we only she only wrote for the vibraphone. Oh, okay. But it's nice because you make those relationships, and you know, people have questions about how do I do this, or I want to write this, and you go, yeah, sure, of course. What do you need? And and that's really nice. I think that's how the world goes round. prepared a percussion quiz for you and a I percussion know, quiz yeah i don't know do we have time do we have time yeah, to do the percussion quiz yeah um, let's do the percussion quiz yeah do, sure. do you shout that if you need great. to run off i presumably i think i'm a... probably okay actually so you know oh, okay well i'm gonna presumably you watched the young musician final this year right actually i haven't <laughs> did, you, did you watch line of duty instead which is what... oh, 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 oh. maybe <laughs>
Yeah, I just it kind of passed me by. I watch very little terrestrial television, although I do watch a show called Line of Duty. So, oh well, we won't Don't say anything anyone. more about that. No. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. But I know the young man who who won. And Thanks, he's terrific. Yeah, he is wonderful. Um, well, this is question one. Thang Zhang was the second percussionist to win BBC Young Composer of the Year. Who was the first percussionist to win, and in what year did they win? Oh, okay. Well, the first the the first was my friend A.D. Spillett. Yeah. And I think the year must have been nineteen ninety eight. Correct. Well done. Whoa! Uh, I'm just I'm going to keep score here. You keep a score. Was that yeah. two or one? That's number one, correct. Is that two points or one point? <laughs> That's just the one point, I'm afraid. Okay. Right. Uh, which London-based... This is niche. Which London-based bell-ringing society was founded in 1637 and is still at the forefront of ringing today? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I thought I knew the answer immediately to your bell-ringing question because, sadly, Whitechapel Bell Foundry is no, about no. to disappear. Yeah. So yeah. I would have thought it might be them. I may need to fact check myself, but certainly in the last <laughs> few years they were st- they were still extinct. The Ancient Society of College Youths, founded wow. in 1637. Pretty cool. Hey, apparently there's two main London-based bell ring societies. The other one's the Society of Royal Cumberland Youths. Wow. Well, I don't know anything about these people. These no. sound like excellent campanologists and people that I need to investigate. Yeah, it's niche. N- number three. What metal is the main constituent of most church bells? Just a connected question. Copper. Correct. Well done. In which biblical book is the tambourine mentioned? Uh, Exodus, Genesis, the Psalms, or all of them? I can't be in Genesis, can it? And on the sixth day, God made a tambourine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Exodus. Now, it's all the above. Genesis thirty-one twenty-two. Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, complains that Jacob had fled his household without saying anything. Why didn't you tell me? So I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps. Oh my goodness, this is excellent. It's good niche knowledge. Apparently, in Exodus fifteen twenty-one, Miriam, Moses' sister, talks about tambourines. And in four Psalms, tambourines appear. So there you go. Uh, here's a, a technical question for you. How many flam rudiments are there? I have no idea what this means, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> to those who don't know, a flam is kind of... Um, uh, r- rudiments are our scales. So if, you, if you're not playing a mallet instrument, so you're not playing a vibraphone or xylophone or whatever, you, you do these different stickings. So there is a flam, there is a flam tap, there is a flam accent, there yep. is a flam paradiddle, so that's four... There's a flam acute, so that's five. There's also the Swiss Army triplet, which has got a flam in it. So I think that's probably six. Um, are there any others? It depends how many rudiments you think there are, because right. most people say there are only 21. Okay. So. My answer and is, this is just a Google thing, is 11. Right. <laughs> I've got flam, flam tap, flam accent, flam acute, pat flatter. No, pat a flaffer. Pat a flaffer. Flam paradiddle, flam flam paradiddle diddle, Swiss army, (laughs) Swiss army triplet, inverted flam tap. Just sounds like single (laughs) flammed mill and a flam drag, and they all sound like wow, like Kama Sutra passages, don't they? And now we're doing the inverted flam tap, (laughs) the the inverted pataflafla. Oh God, tweak your back doing that one. Next question. Which Afro-Cuban drum is, along with the conga, the most widespread of the Cuban drums? Is it the bongo, the batter, the badug, or the bugarabu? Okay. Well, I think, I think, considering the pronunciation, it's going to be bongo, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> really I, like I like your pronunciation. I'm not sure what the last drum is, but it's, Bu- it's Bugar- Bugarabu? I don't know. I'm really letting myself down here. <laughs> Seven. What is the Cuban name for a bongo player? Oh, I don't know. Um, I would have thought they were all bateristas, but clearly Appar- they're more specific. Apparently it's, um, it's a, bong- a bongacero. There you go. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, number eight. There is, there's actually a percussion instrument called a capture, 
which is made from a sheep or goat hooves. It's like a, a type of rattle. Do you know which region the capture comes from? Southern Europe, the Andes, Australia, or the Caribbean? The Andes. Correct, yeah. Well guessed. Which artist had a 1984 music video that featured a vibes player wearing speedos and a moustache? 1984. It could be... It's either Culture Club, Eurythmics, Madonna, or Honey Drippers, which is Robert Plant's side project. Uh, Honey Drippers. Yeah, correct. It's a really like, bizarre music video, if you have the chance to watch it. And Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin has this... Yes. It's a really weird time in his life. Which unusual percussion instrument did George Gershwin use for his An American in Paris? Uh, presumably the tuned car horns. Correct, yes. Okay, question, last question. According to West African drummers, how many spirits does the djembe contain? I've no idea. It's three. It's three. Nine. Okay. Uh, I, I can, would you like to know what they are? What yeah, the spirits like represent? I, I want to, every day is a learning day. Indeed. The spirit of the tree from which it was made. The spirit of the animal whose skin covers the drum head and the spirit of the maker. Wow, okay. Okay, djembe. Presumably the antelope. I, is it an antelope? I don't know. Mm, yeah, they queue up in Africa. Have you? Got, I'm presumably you've got several djembes in the, the ginormous collection of instruments that bind I've got you. A num- I've got a number of djembes, yeah. Um, mm. Up there in the corner, there's a number of dondos, which are from the Dagomba people in the north of Ghana. Oh, that's very fun. Yeah. Wow. Uh, last bonus question. Do you, can you tell me how many instru- how many percussion instruments you own? No, I've got no idea. <laughs> okay, I'm putting that there's down. No, there's, there's no list. That's there's no spreadsheet. There's just a lot of fly cases. Too many. It's probably it's not what my wife would say. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Would you like to know your score at the end of that? Um, intrigue me. Three, four, five, six. Out of... 12 you've got six and a half so congratulations so not that good really no <laughs> i mean you're only a professional percussionist it's fine it's not a big deal um well hey jamie it's been a real pleasure thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you um, so much thanks for having me to me it's been an absolute pleasure yeah yeah you too stay safe guys Before we head off, a very quick thank you to Joby, of course, for that interview, and to Jen from Premiere for sorting all of that stuff out. That's very much appreciated. And a little thank you from me to Martin from Naxos for helping us with the Threnody recording. Martin, who's been helping us with recordings for like from Since episode day one. Yeah, good old Martin. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, it's classic. And finally, if you've enjoyed what you heard, please you know tell us. We have an email address: classical music pod, the classical music pod at gmail.com. Uh, any kind of letter, very welcome, even if it's a complaint, to be honest. Yeah, I hope someone's really angry about Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Mm-hmm, I am. Phoebe,